If you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I highly recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're getting social, talking about what it looks like to design social games, to create these really cool, imaginative social gaming experiences. And we're talking to Nick Metzler, one of the designers over at Spin Master Games. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, man, we're really glad to have you. You're a guy that's worked on a ton of different games, and you work for a pretty major publishing company. You've worked on over 30 games at this point. And so you, you've got some really interesting ideas on how to craft a really interesting atmosphere for social gaming. And so I'm just excited to get into how do you do that? What does that look like? What are the ins and outs of designing and publishing and kind of distributing one of these games? But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. All right. Well, uh, my name is Nick Metzler. I'm 26 years old now, um, and I'm a game designer by trade. Um, definitely started as a game designer by hobby. Um, and I really got the, the Willy Wonka golden ticket to get into the industry. Um, <laughs> my mom always said I had a, a horseshoe up my butt or something because I was insanely lucky. I, my, my start professionally was in kind of like a science fair for toys and games in Chicago called the Young Inventors Challenge. And I entered in when I was 16 and I won with a game called That's Cheating. And as a result, I got to meet tons and tons of people in the industry, got backstage tours of New York Toy and Game Fair, and really met all the movers and shakers. Um, and the next year, I, I entered in with a game called Squashed, and it made such a buzz that not only did I win again, one of the CEOs that I met in New York the previous year came up to me and said, hey, Nick, I want to license your game. Um, and so I sold my first game that day when I was 17 and never looked back. And I've just been in the industry, in and around the industry ever since, um, and just been designing games at Spin Master for five years. But let me tell you a little bit before that, going back all the way back to when I was four years old, that's really when I started my game design journey. Um, it, it's kind of a funny story, actually. I, I loved 8-Bit Mario. It was so much fun. Uh, just seeing this, this Mario character go across the screen, I just I fell in love with it, and I wanted to make the levels better. And back when I was four and five years old, better levels just meant more of what I wanted, right? You know, I didn't have a lot of sense about what was good or bad. Um, and so I used to design puppet Mario video games um, that I drew out on lots of sheets of paper, put a puppet Mario on my finger and had my parents shout out A and B on a cardboard controller. And I moved this Mario character across. Fast forward a couple of years, I found out that puppet video games were really boring for everybody else involved. So I started looking at other things that other people enjoyed. So namely like chess, for example, and every single game that I identified that people liked 
I tried to take that game and tweak it in one way, one significant way to make it a little bit better or more of what I wanted back again, back in the day. Um, and I did that with all sorts of games. I did that with Pokemon. I created my own uh, trading card series over the course of seven years. It had 450 original characters. I developed it into computer games, um, risk games, Stratego games, did a bunch of woodwork, all sorts of stuff. Um, and with every single game that I created, I tried to make something new and innovative that I had never seen before in a game. And so I played with 3D objects. I went you know, five different levels of boards. I made spinning boards. I made games where you could cheat. Um, and it was like necessary for you to cheat in order to win. Um, I made games with magnets and I made all sorts of different types of games just to try and really push my boundaries. And I think all of those really gave me the, the a really strong base for innovation and creativity that I still use today in Spin Master. Very cool. But I really think there's an untapped market for puppet games. So, <laughs> you know, all the stuff you're working on right now, I think you just need to drop it, get the puppets back out, man, and just uh, see where it goes. Hey, you know, TikTok's uh, pretty big. So if I can get some people playing puppet <laughs> video games on TikTok, it could be a massive market. It seems to be going that way. Uh, yeah, TikTok's just a crazy animal all into itself <laughs> right now. But anyway, moving on. So we're getting into social gaming experiences, how to create a, a social game. And now that's not the typical like party game necessarily. It's mm -hmm. not like, hey, get 20 people in a room necessarily. I think these you know experiences can be um, for all sorts of different player counts and different types of games and themes and that kind of thing. So as we get into this, let's create like a really good frame, a, a good working definition. What does it mean exactly to create a social game? Yeah. So when I say social game, I'm referring primarily to games similar to like reality TV shows like Survivor, Big Brother, The Mole, stuff like that. And when I say a social game, I'm talking about games that involve social skills and social elements. And you have to be social in a certain way to win, right? And perceptions of different people become reality in the game and almost you're judged because of those perceptions. So kind of let's roll this back a little bit, tell you how I got into this. Um, when I was in uh, grade school, my, my mom was always making birthday parties for my sister and I. And she made like amazing race birthday parties all around the neighborhood. It was absolutely amazing. So naturally I got into that as well um, because she made a way to make anything fun. It was just a really incredible moment to realize that anything could be made fun and using those new opportunities to make anything around the world fun. So I started making uh, amazing races for people around the neighborhood, turned it into a business, grew it a little bit, started running uh, events for like 200 people consecutively. And I really, had an opportunity to watch how people reacted in certain ecosystems and environments. And I was able to watch how people made decisions, uh, how people behaved, how people had different emotions within rule sets. And I thought that was a really important some step for, for me along my journey. When I was, uh, and when I was in junior year of high school, I found Survivor and I absolutely fell in love with it because it, to me, it represented the ultimate game. It was not only mental, it was physical, it was social, it was spiritual. It was an incredible adventurous journey that people went on for 39 days for an ultimate prize of a million bucks. Like, I mean, how, how much more epic could that get? So I fell in love with the show and I developed two of my own survivors in my backyard in my senior year. I spent like a thousand hours working on it, ran it for my friends and just had an absolute blast. And that ultimately was the kind of the, the cornerstone of what made games my passion. Fast forward a bunch of years, I'm really interested in what makes a social game 
interesting, right? Like why have there not been more games like Survivor? Now, naturally the correct answer is, well, because there's no other games that people want to lie to each other under stress for a million dollars, right? But there's all sorts of social deduction games out there where people enjoy lying to each other. And I'm not saying that social games have to have lying in it. It might just be a component. But I, I like the fact that there's social skills involved in the game. You know, and your social skills have an impact on it. There's no other good way to really experiment with your social skills, you know, to try different things out, see if something works better or something works worse. And I want, I, I really want to design experiences that give you an opportunity to do so. And maybe they're games without lying, right? Maybe they're cooperative games. Maybe they're games where you're trying to work out solutions to a difficult problem, but you're working together to get to the end, right? And maybe nobody's eliminated throughout the course of the game. So that's kind of where I'm thinking about right now. Yeah, that's super interesting. And it also, it reminds me of like legacy games mm. where, you know, what happened last game matters for this game. It's not the typical, you know, when we put the box up, when we put the game away and put the box back on the shelf, you know, the game forgets what happened. I don't forget necessarily. I remember that Steve demolished everyone, but when we get the game out again, the, the game doesn't remember that, but legacy games, they do. And I feel like social games are really interesting because it, it plays into all these other things going on. Like, like what happened last game might play into what, what we're going to do this time. Uh, you know, I might remember, oh, you tried that strategy last time and this is what I did and it didn't work. Let me do something a little bit different or, or something along those lines. Or maybe something's going on between me and my spouse, right? And all of a sudden we're playing the social game and like our little, you know, home disagreement or whatever now all of a sudden plays into the game in some way. And so it's really interesting to think like all the different angles you can come from with one of these gaming experiences. Yeah, no doubt. It's uh, it's a really interesting field. And uh, honestly, it's not for everybody. Not everybody likes that. Some people like games that, you know, are a break from reality. They take you out of reality. But I don't think this whole arena has been studied enough. I don't think it's been experimented with enough. And there could be some really cool opportunities and really cool learning experiences that you can have with games like this. Like games give you an emotional experience and they give you a safe space to fail. And social games give you a safe space to try out new, di new different social skills to see how your reputation might be different if you act a different way. And I think that's a really cool opportunity that people don't fully understand yet. Yeah. And with the success of Survivor, I mean, it's been 20 seasons so far. It doesn't 40. look like it's going to be... Is it been 40 seasons? seasons. 20, 20 years. years. Sorry, sorry. You're right. 20, 20 years, 40 seasons so far. People are still tuning in. The numbers are still high. The ratings are still good. So obviously there's something to this. And then you start thinking about, just from a gaming standpoint, Dungeons & Dragons has been around for a pretty long time, you know, since mm -hmm. the 70s, right? And what is Dungeons & Dragons but a social experience? It is literally a conversation with a few die rolls involved. Like it's a conversation between a handful of people at a table who have all committed to this world, this fantasy world or, or cyberpunk world, whatever your world you're diving into. And then you're, you're talking things out and you're having uh, these different experiences, these different encounters and combats and things. There's all this political intrigue or it's just a bunch of murder hobos running around the, the countryside, killing everything in sight. But either way, you're having this really interesting social experience. So obviously something about this, this type of game, this type of experience really just reaches out to people like it, it just kind of gets into you and you're, you you want to watch or you want to enjoy it you want to play i mean critical role is a youtube show basically or a twitch show also where for four hours people will tune in to watch other people play dungeons and dragons and wow. it's like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people every thursday night will sit down and watch other people for four hours 
play a social game. So obviously there's something to it, right? And so or, or where do we go from here though? Like what, tell me what's next. Now, if I remember right, you worked on Survivor, right? Didn't you come up with some of the challenges like for Survivor? Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to, to work on Survivor. Um, a little backstory about that, actually. It's a, it's a good story. I promise it's quick. So um, after I ran my own Survivors, I fell in love with the show and decided, you know what? This is my passion. I need to find a way to work on this show professionally. And I didn't know anybody in television. I had no contacts whatsoever. And I was in the dark. But you know what? I had unlimited ammo. I could shoot as many times as I want. My shots were words talking to people, right? People were incredible opportunities to try and make a connection to get on the show. Long story short, after about a year of asking people every single day, anybody that I met, um, I found out about a presentation with Mark Burnett, who's basically the creator of Survivor, um, at USC, which was my school. I was a freshman at the time. And I, uh, I snuck into the presentation. I uh, failed an accounting quiz to get there. I ended up getting a B in the class as a result of it. But yeah, failed the accounting quiz, got in. And after the presentation was over, I, I ran up to to Mark and there was about nine people in front of me. I had like this five minute pitch in my head. I had a resume ready and the people in front of me each probably took about 30 seconds and 30 seconds. And I realized very quickly, I was like, oh no, I'm gonna have to condense my five minute speech into like 30 seconds in the next two minutes. And so I was freaking out, freaking out. There's two, three, three people in front of me, two people in front of me, one person in front of me. And next thing you know, I'm literally staring at Mark Burnett and I say, Mark, Survivor is the ultimate game and games are my passion in life. I would love to take my skills to the next level and be a part of this this incredible game. Um, I brought my resume and I'd love to be on the dream team. Would you please pass this on to John Kerroffer? And John Kerroffer was the executive challenge producer, head honcher type of guy. Um, next day I got an email uh, from John being like, hey, Mark uh, dropped me a line, said you were interested in being on the show. And I had I was beside myself. Like Mark had given me an insanely, insanely incredible opportunity. And it was just a dream come true. And so I got to work on seasons 27 and 28 in the Philippines. Um, and 28 is on Netflix, by the way. And so I, I got to build, paint, and test all the challenges on the show. And I loved it so much that I decided to start coming up with challenges. And so I pitched a bunch and one of them got on. And that was the... Uh, that was the one in, in episode two of season 28. So if you're interested, go check it out. Um, it's the one with a big spinning ball maze. It's pretty cool. Wow, that's a that's an incredible story. And it really, I mean, if we're going to take a step back and just kind of look at that from a, a bird's eye view, the moral of it, or, or maybe the heart of it, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, is you got to shoot your shot. You, you got to put yourself out there. You have to fail an accounting quiz, right? To put yourself in a position to get recognized, to be known, to get your resume out there, to get an email, you put yourself in the position and all of a sudden good things happen. I feel like so often, and this is something I feel like a lot of creative people struggle with because a lot of people, they struggle with imposter syndrome where they don't feel like they're good enough. They don't feel like anything they do is, is worthy or valuable or anything like that. And they have a really hard time putting themselves out there. They have a hard time going to shake you know, Mark Burnett's hand. They have a hard time putting themselves in that position. So what would be your your advice just to somebody who, who maybe struggles, right? With putting themselves in a position to even have an opportunity to be successful or to fail. You know, it's so difficult just to even have a shot, let alone to be actually successful. What would you tell those people and how would you kind of get them out of that, you know, being shy or being afraid mode? Yeah. Um, the first thing I would say is what's the worst thing that can happen? You're back exactly where you started, right? 
uh, for me with Mark, that was one of the biggest things that I was thinking of. It's like, hey, you know what? I've been searching for this opportunity for an entire year. This is the only thing that I was focused on for a full year. And you know what? This was an incredible opportunity and I knew it. And you know, a lot of people would be paralyzed by the fear that, you know what, if I screw this up, I'm done. Like this opportunity is over. But for me, I looked at it as, hey, you know what? I find it insane that I even got this opportunity. So I better try my hardest in any way possible to absolutely nail it. And at the end of the day, you have to trust yourself and you have to trust your skills and you just have to go. And you have to look at the fear. You have to thank the fear for being there because it's protecting you in some way. But you have to push past that fear. And the only people that really push past that fear are the ones that get the opportunities. Um, at the same time, I will say that I still deal with imposter syndrome from time to time. It happens. Like it happens to everybody. And to know that it happens to people that, you know, were able to walk up to Mark Burnett and get a dream opportunity, get a job on Survivor. Like it happens to everybody. It's okay. But what you have to remember at that moment when you're feeling like your stuff doesn't matter, or you're feeling like you're not good enough, or you're feeling like everybody else out there is doing better than you, you have to remember that you are on your own journey. You can't compare yourself to anybody else because everybody else is on a different journey, right? You have to use your own individual skills to write your own story, to make your story exactly how you want it. And you know what? You can't control everything in life and that's okay. But how you play the cards that you're dealt is completely up to you. And your attitude towards those cards that you're dealt is completely up to you. And I'd say that's probably one of my biggest takeaways from this is, you know, it's just, it's how you look at it. The perfect example about this is I almost got fired from Survivor on day one. I, uh, I, I thought I was cool. So I was doing some parkour and I bashed my eye in. Um, I had like this massive bloodshot bl black eye and I had to get like a full uh, MRI CAT scan and it cost Survivor like lots and lots of money. And if I had broken any bones, I would have been fired. And I, I ended up making a, a joke to the, the doctor while I was under Cody and getting stitches, being like, hey, you know, this will be a good opportunity to, to practice before you get out on the real thing. She took that offensively. And uh, so the next day I had a talk uh, with my boss. This is John Kuroffer, by the way. He's like the chief executive. He was sitting down. I was 19 at the time. He was like, all right, let's have a talk about respect. And this is the first time I've ever had a talk about respect in my life. Like I thought I was a pretty respectful person. But here I am having a nightmare on my dream job on day one. And I was being told that not only was I one step away from getting fired, one of the only reasons I hadn't been fired yet is because I didn't break any bones and that I wasn't able to do anything for the next two and a half weeks because I needed to heal and make sure that nothing else would go wrong. So here I am, this 19-year-old kid, youngest one on the crew, uh, on my dream job, not able to do anything. And what I could have done was get all depressed and mopey and sat on a couch and laid there and do absolutely nothing. And I did that for the first day. But then something clicked inside me and said, you know what, what are you doing? You have an opportunity here. And the opportunity is to play whatever cards you have in your hand, not play the situation that you've been dealt, right? Like you have to play the cards that you have in your hand. And the cards that I had in my hand was my creativity and I had time. And so I used that time to focus on the things that I could do in my situation right at that moment. And so I started developing tens of hundreds of challenges. And when I say hundreds, I mean like some elements, right? I didn't design full hundred challenges, 
but I had like 50 that I had in my back pocket from the, the back, you know, from the, the backyard survivor. So I just started cranking out challenges and I just started pitching every single day to the boss. And he liked it. And he liked it so much that, you know, he started giving me feedback on it and got more and more and more. And eventually I designed on a trash can, this spinning vertical gravity ball maze. And that was the one that made it onto the show. And as a result, it became a challenge designer for the next several seasons. Yeah, that's awesome. I think one of the best things you can do when you're trying to accomplish something like this is figure out what is required and then do everything you can to set yourself up for success. That way, when you do get that opportunity, right? And you're just going to trust the universe or, you know, whatever, that the opportunity is going to come along. But I, I firmly believe that if you set your mind towards something that the universe will, it'll, it'll change for you, right? If you really put yourself into it and then figure out what's required, set yourself up for success and then go for it. But it might not work out. I don't know. Personally, yeah, I, I, and you have I would, to ask. You have to ask. Yeah, Most exactly. People don't ever ask. Exactly. You know, they do all this preparation and they say in their head, oh, this isn't good enough. I can't put it out there. Yep. So what if people judge you? They yep. have to judge you. Like the only way you're going to get better. Absolutely. And you, you kind of, you really, you honestly have to uh, have a bit of just being naive and you have to be okay with people thinking you're dumb or thinking you have no chance, thinking it's not possible. Personally, I would much rather live a life full of a whole bunch of oh wells than a whole bunch of what ifs. I don't want to, I don't want to go to my grave with what ifs. I don't want to look back and go, man, I wonder what if I had done that, if I had put myself out there, if I had gone up and shaken Martin Burnett's hand, all those people, whatever it is, I don't want to look back and say, Mm, I wonder what if, and you have to be okay with people thinking you're out of your mind sometimes, especially oh, when you yeah. have big dreams, big goals, like it's just going to be part of it. And you just have to not care. And like you're saying, you know, put something out there and just don't care if people don't get it. If people don't understand it, like as long as you know, this is the best possible thing you could have done, then that, that should be enough. And now when you're 19, your best is not going to be near as good as what it is at 26, 56 <laughs> and on down. Right. It's just part of the yeah. process and learning and but you have to learn by shooting the shot missing and going, Oh, Oh, I shot that way too hard. Or I didn't shoot that nearly hard, whatever it is. But then you learn, you grow, you come back, you do it better the next time. And yeah, I think it's just a better way to live. Whether we're talking about life in general or creativity or sports or any of those things, just put yourself out yeah. there. You got to be willing to be a weirdo for a lot of years. And then suddenly you're cool. hundred <laughs> percent, man. I remember when I was in college, I was playing at a small, I was playing football at a small school in Kentucky and new coaching staff came in and new receivers coach. I, I just didn't, I, I didn't get along. I, I did not fit the new culture that it came in. And uh, so I played one more season with that new staff and I was like, I'm done. And uh, I went to the coach guy. I wouldn't get any playing time. It was just a really frustrating thing. And I said, coach, why, uh, why didn't I get any playing time? Like, I feel like I earned it. I feel like I deserved it. He said, well, we just didn't think you were athletic enough to play here. You know, if you like went to a smaller school and this is already a small school, this is a one double a school. This is like, no mm -hmm. one's ever, you know, tiny school. And he's like, yeah, go to D3. They think you might be okay there. And I thought, you know what? Screw that. I don't, I don't think so. I think I am better than that. I think I am better than that uh, characterization. And so I trained my butt off for a year and I transferred to Auburn university. And on the first day of, of class every year, they have an open tryout and you can come on and you can try to walk onto the team. And I remember going to that tryout, and, and there was like a hundred other people there, just like crazy athletes, guys from Georgia and Florida and South Carolina, all these guys trying to transfer in all these different things. And I went out there and just did the best I possibly could put it all on the field, walked off going, you know what? That's, that's as good as it gets. That's a, that's an old well, if it doesn't happen. Yep. And I ended up being one of six people that got picked up to be a, to play at Auburn university in the SEC. Okay. I went on, I was able to play, you know, I've got some stats somewhere, nothing crazy. But there are some stats with my name next to it <laughs> somewhere <laughs> on ESPN.com, right? And I was able to prove, okay, 
a lot of people thought I was crazy. Like, there's no way. There's no like you're wasting your time. Why are you in the weight room at 5 a.m. every yeah. day getting ready for some some tryout a year from now that you're not even going to make the team? It doesn't matter. Go do something else. Go do something better with your time. It's like no. This is how I'm going to live my life, and and this we're just going to see what happens. And if it doesn't work out, well, at least I know personally that it didn't work out. I don't have to wonder. And it so all comes that's down just, to that individual choice. Exactly. Exactly. And so you know. Folks listening to this and, and you're sitting there, and you're like, I want to, I want to design a game that gets picked up by a company like Spin Master, or I want to go out and I want to have a Kickstarter that launches a business, or you know, whatever it is, game design, life, whatever. Put yourself out there, figure out what's required, work your butt off, say, oh well, not what if. But right. anyway, anyway, moving on to the actual topic at hand, <laughs> get a little trouble. It was a good but, segue. Uh, I liked it. I'm I think so. Like it too. All right. I'm just Yo, trying to improve. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get back into social gaming. Tell me what you learned. What were some of your biggest takeaways from Survivor that then you were able to maybe bring over in some of the games you've worked on? You know, Hell Hydra is one of the, probably the most popular game or maybe most well-known game you've worked on at Spin Master. Tell me maybe some of these other games you've worked on too. But what, what did you take away from Survivor that you were able to inject into the social gaming experience in an actual board game? Yeah. Um... Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty similar to the character on Survivor that played season 28. His name was Spencer Bledsoe, um, really amazing guy. And one of the things that he struggled with on his season was understanding emotions. And I, I had a similar experience. You know, I, I was always very math guy, um, you know, very logical. I need to do this thing before I need to do that thing. But I never understood like the mysteries of human emotion. And so obviously that had issues with uh, finding girlfriends and things like that. So in college, one of my main goals was to understand emotion at its deepest core and figure out, like, pick those things apart. Like, what caused certain emotions? And Survivor, for me, was an incredible case study. I was able to look at it and look at how the game design created different emotions in different people. And from that, I was able to start extrapolating and hypothesizing how people would re react in different situations. And so that's what I find games to be so fascinating. It's it's almost like a lab experiment. It's you can create an ecosystem by setting up the rule sets for a situation, and then you can see how people react in those situations. Now, fortunately, I get to do that exact same thing with board games, but you know, the, the focus is fun. Focus is fun in connection and relationships and relationship building rather than on Survivor. It's like exploiting and tearing people down, right? You know, because you're trying to be the last one standing. I wanted to focus a lot more on the cooperation and the, the relationship building aspects. And whenever I create a game, those emotions are front and center. You know, what emotions am I trying to spark in the consumer so that they have a really incredible time with the people that they're playing with? And I think that's how it sometimes differs from a lot of things like, you know, video games. And video games are amazing. Don't get me wrong. I love video games. But board games have this social element. They have this experience with the other people at the table that you're creating together. You know, there's no crazy great graphics and you know user interface that has ultra responsive technology and rumble controllers and things like that it's literally you pieces of cardboard incredible art sometimes and the people that you're with and how you can design rules to elicit emotions within an environment like that is really fascinating and so that's really what got me hooked into gaming as a whole as a medium um, is it's a way to design emotions and design experiences where you're okay to fail and it's okay to feel different things, feel, you know, feel judged in a game because there's no lasting or long-term effects. And I don't know what, when I got into social gaming, when I got into, you know, more of these long-term games, it's a way to really bring your entire life into it just for a little bit of time. Um, and to really experience what 
other you know <laughs> ways of acting could be life or could be like in your life and i think it's a really cool just like experiment that you get to play with yourself very cool now when you're designing a game like early on have you already identified which emotions in particular you're trying to really focus in on and elicit from the players like do you almost create like a like a mission statement or a vision statement for the game saying all right all right for this game i want to really you know focus on or create this emotion of distrust or you know mistrust distrusting mm-hmm. other people at the table things like that do you think about it early on uh, I do. Yeah. Uh, it took me a lot of years to get to this point, And I feel like I've gotten to like more of a meta level of game design where I'm like designing specifically for certain emotions um, where I'll say like, look, I want to have lots of cooperation and lots of trust. Um, I want people to feel smart or powerful in the game. And so I know I'll need to create certain power swings at certain times, but make sure that those power swings are gradual because too fast of a power swing, people feel you know, disjointed. They don't know what to do with all that power of you know, something happens so fast. Um, so I try to create the the flow of the game. How do I want people to experience the game over time? And then I set up the rules to support whatever that is. And then obviously I'm not always right in my first try, you know, so I'll play test it. I'll see how people react, how people experience the game. And then I'll make a bunch of tweaks here and there, uh, starting with really big tweaks and then narrowing it down to small tweaks. Um, I'd say a good process for designing a game is focusing first on the engine, the core engine of what you're doing. It's got to be a fun engine. It's got to be a core push and pull. If your core engine isn't fun, it's not going to be a fun game, no matter how many bells and whistles you put on it. So really focus on making sure that core engine is fun. And an easy way to think about this is think about like any, any game that's out there, right? So let's take Mario Kart, for example. The core engine of Mario Kart is driving and going forward, right? If driving wasn't fun in Mario Kart, the entire game would suck. But because driving is fun, the additions of things like different wheels or different gliders or different items, all of that becomes fun as well because it augments what's already fun about the game, which is driving. So I'd say from a game design standpoint, you want to start with the core engine first, make sure that that core experience is fun in and of itself, and then start adding things around that. And then finally, once you're at the very end, that's when you add variable player powers. And that's ultimately what creates the most amount of playtesting that you'll need to do for balancing and all that stuff. But that is the final step. A lot of people do it the opposite way. Gotcha. All right. And so when you're thinking about, I want to create this emotion in players, uh, you know, right off, right at the beginning, are you thinking through, how is my core engine going to create that? Or is it something mm-hmm. that kind of gets added on at the end? Like, tell me how it works, you know, as far as the emotion and your game design process kind of intertwine with each other. Yeah, sure. Let's take Hail Hydra, for example. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Hail Hydra is a social deduction game uh, themed in the Marvel Universe. Um, S.H.I.E.L.D. is kind of like a CIA type agency. Um, they're the good guys. And Hydra is kind of like a Nazi agency, and they're the bad guys. They're, they're the sleeper cells in the S.H.I.E.L.D. organization. So it's S.H.I.E.L.D. versus Hydra. Um, and in this game, you all are a group of heroes, usually the Avengers, um, who are working together to defend the city from a series of villains who are attacking the city. Now, the thing is, some of your agents around the table are actually secretly Hydra members. And it's your job to find out, suss out, and kick out the Hydra agents uh, before um, the city gets destroyed. And so the, the Hydra agents are actively looking to sabotage every mission possible by throwing in negative cards. Um, for those of you who know Secret Hitler, it's similar to Secret Hitler, uh, but a little bit more involved. Um, 
it's kind of like a light Battlestar Galactica, I'd say, um, if you know those games. Um, but in that game, uh, the, one of the main things that I wanted to focus on was in, in the movies, there's an experience where people say Hail Hydra, right? And it's this, this statement that you are part of this Hydra network, right? And I knew I wanted that experience for the players to really reveal their subterfuge and say hail hydra just to reveal to the entire table that they in fact were the people that were trying to deceive everybody else um and i wanted that to happen right at the end of the game right at the climax when there was so much tension so for the rest of the game i knew i needed to build that tension up to a point where people could reveal themselves and announce hail hydra while the game was still going on so i knew those were elements that i needed in the game and i made sure that the rest of the game supported those elements Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So a game we talked about a little bit right before we hit record was this uh, interesting social type game, a social experience type game called Don't Get Got. And mm. uh, I know it's made by a company that's uh, partnered up with uh, with Spin Master. So tell me about that one. And let's talk a little bit more in depth about how that game creates a really interesting social experience. Yeah. Big Potato Games. They're the guys that created that one. Oh, I love that company. They are such a great party games company. Um, they just understand social dynamics so well. I uh, can't recommend them enough. They're fantastic. And all the games are great. Uh, but Don't Get Got is kind of like a passively involved experience that you play during game night or during a party. Um, unfortunately, COVID ended a lot of parties. But um, you would walk in the door and you'd be given a secret mission that you needed to complete without anybody knowing that you were completing that mission. And so you had to basically Don't Get Got. Because um, people could call you out for doing a secret mission and then you got got. Um, but the more secret missions you completed, the better you would do. And so sometimes it was like taking a photo in a certain area or, you know, hiding a piece of food somewhere or stuff like that. It was goofy things. Um, they expanded upon it recently with a game called The Office, uh, or like the Office Space game. Uh, super fun. Great for office environment, but unfortunately COVID <laughs> nixed that one. Um, but they they created a game that is away from the table. You know, it lasts for however long the social experience lasts. Or if your group really wants to play it, it could last for weeks. You know, it doesn't have to end. And I think that's a really cool thing to have because it just keeps the game top of mind and it just keeps you involved in the fun and the enjoyment of playing the game. And, you know, you could be sneaky at certain times. You could be, you know, it makes life a little bit more interesting because you could be walking down the street and instead of thinking, oh, I'm just walking down the street, you could be thinking, hmm, how can I figure out how to achieve this this small little task? And I think that's something really cool about games, especially, is they give you achievable goals. You know, you know a goal is achievable in a game because the game is designed to be achievable, right? You know, sometimes in life it feels like things aren't achievable or it's too difficult or too complicated or takes too long. But games, they give you all that intrinsic motivation really quickly because you know they're achievable and you know it's designed to be achievable. And so I, I think that's a really cool aspect of games in general and also don't get got. Yeah, and it's such a great game for really awesome moments. Like the moment mm. when you do complete that mission, I think one of the missions is like get someone to put on a hat, right? So it's some kind of silly thing like that. But, you know, at the same time, everybody's paranoid. And so anything that's like not normal at all, like anything beyond, hey, where's the bathroom? And even that might be a mission, like get someone to ask where the bathroom is, you know, and so you're not sure. And so everything's kind of this paranoid 
thing. And so when you're able to pull off one of these missions, especially against someone who's really clever, who's really smart, and you're able to get them, it, it feels good, right? And we were talking uh, earlier, I think before we hit record, about how people, when they play games, they want to feel powerful, they want to feel wealthy, they want to feel smart, right? So anything you can do to really play up those emotions in people is going to draw them towards your game even more. It's going to make them want to play the game more often and introduce it to more and more people. And so talk about those emotions and how they kind of play into games. Maybe why? Why do you think those three emotions in particular really play into these social dynamics and these social games and make people you know, want to play? Yeah, plain and simple. A lot of people don't get those experiences very often in daily life. We're in a situation, a society almost that, you know, it doesn't give you a lot of opportunities to feel those things. Um, you know, it's a very competitive, almost winner take all experience, but you know, you can get those condensed experiences really fast in the game. You know, you can feel power. You can feel what to do with power when you're in a game. You feel, you know, you know, exciting when you when you can wield that power. Ultimately, it comes down to three uh, main core emotions. It's uh, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. So I wouldn't, uh, not necessarily emotions, but drivers. These are the three ingredients of intrinsic motivation. Um, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Autonomy being you have control over your destiny. Mastery being you can continually get better at the game and you know how you can get better at it and purpose. You know why you're doing it in the first place. And a lot of people don't have those three things in their life or they don't believe that they have those three things in life. I would encourage you to look at those three things and say, which ones am I missing and why? Or how can I you know, take all three of those to the next level? And you'll find that you're a little bit more motivated every single day. Um, but I think those, the, the power, wealth, and uh, smarts, I think it relates back to those three in a pretty interesting ways. Smarts, because you know what? You've proven that you have got some level of mastery in the game, right? Wealth, because again, you've proven that you have some level of mastery in the game and the purpose of the game is to win, right? So you already have that purpose stated for you. And <laughs> I'll touch on wealth really quickly. Well, why why does everybody use single digits in their games? Like you can you can get one monies or two monies or three golds. Add some zeros to it. Make people feel really rich. You know, you get a hundred thousand gold instead of just ten gold, right? It's so much more exciting to be playing with millions of dollars instead of ones of dollars, right? And to be so, fair, all you really have to do is add a K or an totally. M next to it, and the game doesn't change at all. But That's now all of a sudden, it feels like do. yeah. All of a sudden you feel rich and it, it, it brings out a different emotion in people. You know, people feel like immediately more powerful. And it's so funny because you haven't done anything different. And that's what I mean about the, the power of games. Like you can put people into a different environment, a different headspace just by doing those tweaks. And so, yeah, I mean, one of the big things is, you know, whenever you're designing a game, try to pick which one of those three or a mix of three that you want the players to experience. Right. So for Hail Hydra specifically, um, you know, a lot of it was the power, you know, power over, if you're the bad guys, power over the game and controlling how and who's going to win. Um, smarts could be the good guys, right? You know, how do I figure out who is the bad guys in this game? And when I'm right, and I know I'm right, and I can convince other people to know that I'm right. And then when you are right, you're validated by it. It's just like, oh, it's a great feeling. You're like, I know it. You're going to be shouting that the entire time. And it just brings out a different type of emotion to people. 
Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. I know you worked, you've worked with gamification, you've worked with education, you know, not necessarily like educational games. We're not talking about Trivial Pursuit here, but you've worked with, for, you know, games in the classroom and things like that. So tell me about that and that experience and kind of how you weave this social gaming experience into gamifying things and creating really cool experiences for the classroom. Yeah, uh, let me start with how games and gamification could be used for education and educating concepts. So I was, I was working with my buddy. Um, we were designing an escape room, a 15-minute experience uh, to teach teenagers the fundamentals of blockchain technology. And the goal was to create this experience where teenagers could leave and understand how blockchain works and why it's impressive and why it's really cool. And for those of you who don't know blockchain, it's the thing running behind Bitcoin. And for those of you who don't know Bitcoin, it's it's going sky high right now. <laughs> but that, that's beside the point. So um, we created this, this blockchain escape room um, using a lot of metaphors. You know, uh, it's just trying to create the experience where people could have this exciting moment and this exciting uh, emotional experience because people remember emotions better than they do logical facts and things like that. So we wanted to create this emotional experience and to have those emotions be how blockchain works. So we wanted people running around, uh, hitting a bunch of buttons, trying to make sure that, you know, this this hack didn't get above 51% of um, the computer network, which is basically how a, a blockchain could get hacked. Um, and so we, we had this experience where people were running around full of adrenaline, making sure that this thing didn't happen. And then we showed them later, it's like, okay, this is how it actually would have happened or could have happened. And you'll remember that a lot more as a result. Um, but kind of parlaying that into education and into the classroom, what can you do as a teacher to help kids experience the, the, the curriculum in a much more vivid way? Well, it goes back to the emotional piece. Like, what are kids striving to achieve? What game are they playing when they're playing the game of education? Oftentimes, they're playing a competitive game against their peers, right? They are only doing well if they're beating their peers, if they're feeling more, you know, smarter, more intelligent. And I think that's kind of a messed up game. You know, in addition, games, in order to get better at games, you need a rapid feedback system. The more rapid the feedback system, the better the, the players will do at getting better at it. That's why people can get really good at video games really fast. And other things, they'll, you know, not improve as quickly because they don't have the feedback coming in as rapidly. Right. And so homework isn't actually a great feedback system because it takes, you know, at least a day for them to get responses, maybe up to two weeks. And then there's all this pressure on a test where people are studying, 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 and then they take the test and then they forget it all. And did they really learn anything? That's the real question. You know, <laughs> should they come away with anything? I mean, you hope they do. But if you can change this ecosystem into a more collaborative ecosystem where People are motivated to want to help each other. You know, that could create a new type of collaborative teamwork emotion style that can be really incredible. And so let me dive a little bit deeper into that because I'm speaking very top line right now. Say, for example, you've got a star kid in a star student in class who really knows their stuff, right? And then you got somebody who is having a little lot more trouble with it. How do you create a situation where you can motivate the person that's on top? to help the person that's on the bottom, right? In a competitive environment, that doesn't work. In a collaborative environment, that starts to work. And so you can make it in a way that, hey, you know what? You can take you can take on this boss again, maybe it's a test, 
again and again, but you have to take it in a team. And if you if you work with somebody else to help them out and help them get through the boss and help them along the path, and maybe there's parts in the level that they have to do themselves, you know, you're going to have to rely on each other. You're going to have to trust each other to do well because your name is at stake too. And why would you take a risk on that? Well, maybe it's because you can get extra credit. Maybe that's the best way that you can get the most amount of points is if you put your trust in somebody else that hasn't really been doing very well and you create a more of a cooperative experience, a cooperative learning game where, you know, you want each other to do well. And I think that's a piece that's missing in, in modern education right now. You don't, you don't really care about the other students. You don't want them to do well. If anything, if it's on a bell curve, you want them to do poorly. And it's just such a messed up system, I think. Um, and it's unfortunate that, you know, everything, you know, goes to a test and then it's another two months and then there's another test. And if you fail the test, you just, you're done. You don't have a way to improve. Why isn't it where you could take on the tests whenever you want? I, I know there's a lot of logical reasons why you can't do that, but why can't we brainstorm solutions where you can? Where you can take the tests at your own rate and you can work towards it at your own rate and take it on like a like a video game, right? You'll progress through it really quick. And the 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 amount of tests that you get through in the semester, then that becomes your grade, right? And if you finish the entire game before everybody else, Maybe you can go back and maybe there's little collectibles that you can get in different areas of the tests. And that's maybe that gives you a reason to go back and help somebody else get through these tests it's because that's the only way to get those collectibles. If you want to get the perfect score, you might have to go back and help somebody else out too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at the very least, we need to have a conversation just as a society about how do we do education better. We basically have been doing it the same way for a hundred years and things are a little bit different in 2020 than they were mm -hmm. in 1920. And so what does it look like to create something different, something for a very uh, much more, a much more advanced world, a much more advanced society than it was a hundred years ago. And I think with gamification and really thinking through, and it's not just in the classroom, it's also homeschooling, obviously, but also mm -hmm. just family games and things like that and creating an environment where maybe you get to redefine what winning means or what winning oh, looks yeah. like. You know, one thing you mentioned a minute ago was like, you know, a lot of times it's competitive nature. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to try to win. I'm going to try to be number one in the class or have the highest yeah. grade on the test, whatever. And so, you know, one thing I was thinking about while you're talking is like, all right, if I'm designing a, a multiplayer game for four players, then as a, as a game designer, my goal is to create a game that everybody at the table has roughly a 25% chance of winning. Everybody has the same chance, same opportunity, you know, to win roughly. It's always going to be a little bit different, but that's what you're going for. Well, in a classroom, if we're being honest, it, it, classroom might have 20 people in it, but it's still the same four people that are really have the chance of, you know, there's four people in that room have 25% chance. And then there's a whole bunch of people with 0% chance of finishing yep. at the top. Right. And so how do we redefine winning? How do we, you know, exactly. ask different questions? How do we focus on a different way to measure success as a teacher? One of the things I would tell my students constantly is guys, I don't care what your grade is on this test, because if you make a hundred but you don't understand any of these concepts. If you got into the world and you're not able to translate what you've learned in this class into real world application, then your grade doesn't matter. So your grades, I don't care. I, if everybody gets an A in this class, awesome. You know, it doesn't, cause it doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. It's really about the underlying concepts and the things that you're learning and do they translate? Do they go out? Uh, do they help you become a better human in the real world? And just trying to redefine things. I think games are a great way to do that. I love that you've reframed the, the goal uh, of winning. It's just you, you've reframed it so well. And I encourage so many other teachers to, to do exactly what you just said. 
it's it's not about that individual game it's about the the larger experience it's about the social experience right like it goes back to all of that and yeah it's it's so easy for humans to focus on an individual goal and if you make sure that individual goal is tied to the larger goals of the experience in general that's that's where you really hit the sweet spot and i feel like not a lot of people do that yet and i really hope that it continues yeah, I mean, one of the one of the most difficult things about it is the measuring, right? So one thing that makes, you know, the competitive nature as far as like get the highest grade, because it's easy to measure. It's like, well, who had the highest number? Well, you had 101, you had the highest one, therefore you win. And so I feel like it takes a lot of extra work because all of a sudden you're having to redefine things and it's a little gray, right? It's a little bit harder to tell what the actual fruit is. And so you're planting all these seeds and you're watering them and you're like, all right, so how do you measure, you know, who wins, so to speak? What does that look like? But yeah, I think it's definitely worth having the conversation. But let's, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, again, let's talk about technology. You, you've designed some games that work with Alexa, which I find mm-hmm. fascinating. Like how in the world does that work? Like what kind of game can you create with Alexa? And so tell me a little bit about that and then how it all kind of comes back into this whole social gaming experience. Yeah. So while I was at Spin Master, one of the big things that I was focused on was, okay, we've seen like seen it, for example, we've seen, you know, other games with apps, the next thing obviously is voice technology like how do we create games that are with voice technology that don't suck and the um all the games out there that had voice technology was you know like trivia and jeopardy and like ask me a riddle let's solve the riddle there was a couple cool ones that were like kind of escape rooms with background music and there was another cool one um uh saint noir it was kind of like a murder mystery but it felt a little procedural i wish it had a little bit more gameplay experience Beasts of Balance did a pretty good job with it, um, where they used physical objects to create this uh, this world. Um, but they did it mainly with uh, like an iPad, basically. Um, nobody had really cracked Alexa or figured out what to use it with. Um, and so I thought about one of the things that I thought about was like, okay, what is everybody frustrated with Alexa about? You know, like what is what do people actually use Alexa for? They use it to turn on their lights, to play music and to tell them the weather. And that's about it. Uh, for the most part, it's just like a passive thing that just sits there and it's kind of annoying. And I found that most most people just got frustrated with it. And the, the reason people got frustrated with it is because it misunderstood your questions and it started droning on and on and on about something that you didn't actually want to know about. So I took that frustration and I turned it into something funny. I wanted to make sure that that frustration was something that you could laugh at and take a a thing that you were typically tense about. You had all this built up tension and you could release it in just a humorous way. And so that's how I created a game called Good Question. Um, It's a very simple game, but it plays on the element of Alexa droning on and on about a thing that you actually didn't want to ask it about. (laughs) The game is very simple. Um, You draw a card. There's lots of cards. You draw a card. Each card has a word on it. Your goal is to get Alexa to say that word without you saying that word first. You can ask any question you want, um, and you just got to see how Alexa responds. If Alexa says the word, you get a point. Um, Super fun. Highly recommend playing it whenever you see an Alexa or a Google Home device. Um, You can play it anywhere, and you can make up the words. Uh, But if you really like the game, you can buy the game. (laughs) comes with a lot of pre-vetted words, and there's some really interesting ones in there. Um, There's some words that I found that Alexa couldn't really figure out how to say, like uh, canon. Um, believe it or not, that was really difficult. Burrito was really difficult. Um, yeah, there's some interesting stuff that I found out with when working with Alexa. Yeah, that's hilarious. I think Jackbox 
is another good example of oh, you know, bringing apps or bringing technology into a social gaming experience. Another one that works really, really well in education uh, also. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, if you're, if you're a designer, listen to this, and you're like, I want to design games with technology, check out, check out good question for one, uh, but also check out uh, Jackbox games. There's a ton of different ones and they have some really, really interesting ways of, you know, presenting the games, right? There's like all sorts of different styles and different mechanisms going on. Yeah, And, and then think about like what technology can do as a tool you know, like how does it create different experiences in in life? So like take Alexa, for example, again, that is an ambient computer that is sitting at the table with you. How are you going to use an ambient computer to augment gameplay in some way? Like there's so many ways that you can use it. I'm not going to give away our secrets, obviously, but there's so many opportunities that haven't been tapped yet with ambient computing. Like that's such a powerful thing that you have use it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's uh, let's talk about playtesting for a minute. Whenever you're playtesting one of these games, what are you looking for? Like what are you watching the the gamers, the testers and like what are you making notes about as you're really trying to hone in on how to make that uh, experience, that social experience even better? Yeah, one of the things that I focus on with playtesting is the first thing that I do when I create a game is I playtest by myself against myself. And as a result, I know every perfect strategy because, you know, I'm playing against people with perfect information, which is myself, right? And so naturally, I'm discovering a lot of stuff really quickly, discovering if things are broken. And so I'll fix a lot of the, the stuff early on before I hit, hit the playtesting. Once I hit the playtesting with real people, I watch to see how people interact with the information for the first time. You know, so are they understanding these things really quickly? If they're not understanding these things quickly, then my meaning making has issues. Like I haven't made that meaning clear enough yet. Maybe I need to design better icons. Maybe I need to design like a better on-ramp because it's easy to understand what to do once you already know all of it, right? So make sure that the on-ramp is amazing. People will typically only play a game one time before they judge it and will play it again and again or never again. And so you need to make sure that the first time the public plays your game, they have a great time. But obviously that's in a refined product. How do we do it in playtesting, right? So make sure that on-ramp is there. Cut away as many confusing moments as possible. If anything, if people are getting stuck repeatedly on a certain thing, you need to change it. It's going to suck to change it, but you need to change it. And it's just, it's one of the things that you have to do as a game designer. I've never regretted making a decision like that. You know, it always was annoying because it oftentimes required an entire overhaul of the game, but that's what you have to do if you want the game to be really fun and successful. Um, The next thing you want to look for is your own confirmation bias. So know your own biases. You are biased to assume that this game is fun, this game is balanced, this game is good. You need to make sure you are looking for patterns that break your uh, hypotheses, right? Take it with a scientific method approach. You have to have, you have to go in with a null hypothesis and you have to be looking to break that null hypothesis, right? That is the only way you're going to get incredibly um, faster and better at game design is if you try to break your own stereotypes. You know, if you say this is a really fun game, you need to be thinking about how can this not be a fun game? What people don't enjoy this? Why don't they enjoy that? Can they enjoy it if I tweak something else over here? I need to be looking for the people that say that the game is rigged, say that the game, you know, there's too much luck in the game, when really it's a lot of luck mitigation and strategy. You need to be looking for the people that say it's way too much luck. And you need to ask them why, right? You need to look for the things that break your own stereotypes and that will help you a lot. 
Gotcha. Now, when it comes more specifically to the social games, what are you mm. looking for? You know, like if you're designing a heavy Euro game, then you might be watching playtesters and they might look like they're in pain. The looks on their face, you know, might be look like they're doing taxes and they're doing their accounting because they kind of are. And that might be great because at the end of the game, those same people who look like they were in pain might go, this is amazing. This is a ton of fun. But I yeah. feel like if you're designing a social game, you're looking maybe for a little bit different reaction. And so like, how do you measure that? How do you really know if it's creating the joy or the the trust issues, the paranoia, the laughter? How do you know these emotions are actually happening in the players while you're watching the test? Yeah, social games are a little bit different because sometimes you can talk to the players during the game. Um, other times you get them to record videos to see where their internal states are at. You know, you ask, you, you give them a, a set of questions. You ask them to answer the questions basically any way they want. Um, so that can help. You can do debriefs at the end, be like, hey, what were you thinking in the situation? Why did you do that? Did you feel that this person betrayed you? Did you feel that this person was really working with you and you really trusted them? How did you know that you trusted them? Um, a lot of those things. Gotcha. That makes sense. All right. Let's, uh, let's talk about the future as we yeah. start to wrap up this episode. Where do you think things are headed when it comes to social gaming, when it comes to the future of the gaming industry? Where are we going? Yeah, let's first talk about the metaverse. Uh, for those of you who don't know the metaverse, it's basically a digital universe that you live in. Um, po popularized by like Ready Player One. I think there's another one called Snowpiercer or something like that, Snowfall. Um, not really sure. But basically the idea is you put on a VR headset and you're transported to this virtual world where you can meet people, socialize, hang out. Um, but really, I mean, the metaverse is already starting to happen. It's, you know, it's social experiences in a digital space. So you look at the Marshmallow concert and the Travis Scott concert that happened in Fortnite. That's metaverse stuff. You look at Facebook Horizons, they're developing the metaverse. Roblox, that's also the metaverse. They're all creating these different metaverses all at the same time. And I think that's going to be a big factor in the next 10, 20 years of gaming and life. I think a lot of stuff is going to shift virtual and shift online because you have so many more potentials for experiences and potentials to meet new people and create new things um, inside this digital space. And you don't have to waste a lot of resources doing it, which is a really cool time to be alive. Um, so I think that's going to be really big. I think the rise of AI is going to be relatively big as well. Um, first and foremost, as a brainstorming tool, like GPT-3, if you know much about that, it's, it's some incredible stuff. Uh, it can write like an entire novel super fast if you just feed it a bunch of novels. So if you're looking to come up like a, for come up with like a name for your game, for example, you could probably find an AI software piece out there that you can feed a bunch of similar names and it'll brainstorm a thousand names for you in 10 seconds, right? The people who understand how to use AI creatively as a brainstorming tool will have such an advantage over the people who don't use it. And, you know, you'll just be able to just filter so many ideas so quickly. Um, Eventually, AI is going to start thinking creatively as well, but you're going to have to figure out how to set up the parameters around it. So you'll have to think sort of like a game designer, honestly, creating the rule sets for the AI to operate in so that you can get the desired results. So putting that into gaming terms as well, I think there's something really cool about using AI to help teach games, right? Like you can put on some smart glasses and you can see six potential moves you can see the three best moves and why. Maybe you'll be able to see like with AR how different chess pieces move and the potential ramifications of your choices and your actions without having to play a full game. Like talking about that feedback system, your feedback system just sped up by a factor of 10, right? That's insane. You can get really good really fast at a lot of things. 
And I think AI is going to really help with that, really help with strategic decision making, not only in games, but also potentially in your own life. You know, you can look at what did people do in all of these situations for my age bracket across time and cultures. And you can see what things usually led to demise and what things usually led to a path to success. And it will be up to you to actually take those steps. And with that information, know what steps you're taking down. So, you know, from like a pure board game standing uh, standpoint, you can use AI to help teach games, number one, to create that on-ramp. Or number two, you'll create an entire new tournament division where you get human and AI teams that are competing in, in games, right? Like that could be really cool. So I know I painted a very broad picture of where things could go in the future, but with how things are exponentially increasing so fast, I think we're heading towards that rate or that, that future at a really fast rate. And I would recommend just having a cursory knowledge about it. You don't have to go deep on it. Just look it up, look up where it's at, look up why it is doing the things that it's doing, look up where the AI researchers think it's going next, right? And you can start to piece together where it might go and how you can position yourself correctly in the environment that it's going to create. Yeah, very cool. We've got some uh, really exciting things ahead. That is for sure. No doubt. Well, Nick, this has been great. you have any closing thoughts? You know, someone sitting there listening to this thinking, all right, I want to make a, a social game. I want to create a really cool social experience. What would you tell them? Mm. Start with something that you know. Tweak it, see how it changed. I think that's the easiest piece of advice that I can give any budding game designer. Um, it's how I started and it's how I started innovating. And now I can take these, these massive meta concepts and smash them together and know, predict how these things are going to create an ecosystem for it. And then I can play test it and try to disconfirm my hypotheses. If I can't disconfirm my hypotheses, I need to run more tests because something's probably wrong. I just don't know it yet. And if I run a bunch of tests and everything says green lights go, then I made a good game, right? So start with something that you know, tweak it a little bit and see what changed and figure out why it is that that thing changed, right? So if you change the rook in chess, for example, and you get a completely different play feel, why did that play feel feel different? You know, why did that one rule change create a different environment? And you can do that as many times as you want. And that's how to design a really good game. Awesome. Nick, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with more social games that I know that you're working on over there at Spin Master and good luck mm. with everything else you got going on right now. Thank you very much, Gabe. Appreciate it. And good luck to everybody else out there too. Uh, if you want to reach out to me, uh, feel free. I'm not super active on social media, um, but you can hit me up on LinkedIn. My name is Nick Metzler. Um, that's M-E-T-Z-L-E-R. Um, I used to be on Instagram. I'm not that big on it anymore. So I wouldn't recommend reaching out there. You can reach out on Facebook as well. Um, just mention that you heard me on the show and I'd be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?